reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 22 to 31. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of arms, of rams, sorry, rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, as in inequity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, feel free to open your Bible to 1 Samuel 8, where we're going to be this morning, and pull out your uh, sermon outline from the bulletin to help you follow along. As Pastor Tim mentioned, this is a quarter-way marker through, the, uh, through our year of the Bible together. So if you've been following along, I, I'm really grateful that you've been able to read a quarter of the Bible so far. If this is new to you or you haven't started yet, you know, tomorrow is a great day to get started, uh, and you can read three quarters of the Bible this year, which is awesome. Uh, you, you can go back and read the first quarter, too, if you want. Um, but I hope you're commemorating that by dropping rocks in the, uh, in the barrel each week as you read another book of the Bible and thank God for his word and reflect on what you've learned from it. Well, today, as we continue through the Old Testament, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel plays an important part in the Old Testament because it's a transition point from what was previously a theocracy, where God ruled directly the people of Israel, to a monarchy, where God ruled through a king, where uh, Israel went from being ruled directly by God through his prophets, priests, and judges, to being ruled by a human ruler of a king. And so the question is, how does Israel go from a theocracy to a monarchy, and what do they gain and lose along the way? And so First and Second Samuel tell this story through the lens of the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. And Saul, broadly put, is the tragedy figure where things have gone wrong, and David is the figure who represents more, though not completely, what it would mean to follow God. We'll talk more about David next week, but this week I want to talk about Saul. Why should you care about Saul's story? Because at his core, he's a cautionary tale for all of us. Saul's story is a warning to us of what happens when we prioritize people's opinion of us 
over God's opinion. Saul's a warning to all of us of the danger of putting other people's opinions first before God's. Saul fails as a king because he cares and fears of what people think of him. And he's so concerned about maintaining his image that he fails to actually obey God. He cares more of whether people think he's godly than whether he is actually godly. And as a result of this, 1 Samuel is a story of Saul's soul being rotted away from the inside. Saul uh, tries to keep up appearances throughout 1 Samuel so much that his soul turns in on itself and against God. And by the end of 1 Samuel, his soul and his mind is lost to madness, a result and a consequence of abandoning God. And at the end of his life, he'll ultimately commit suicide because he cares even in death what people will say about him and whether, who they say he's killed by. Saul's a cautionary tale for all of us because Saul's temptation is so common to us to be ruled by what people think of us rather than the opinion of God himself. So Saul's story goes over a number of chapters, so we're going to look at three of them. Uh, the first part, we'll look at chapter 8, which talks about how Saul became king. The second part, we'll talk about how Saul failed as a king in chapter 13 and 15. And then we'll finish up by talking about what was behind Saul's failure in chapter 15. All right, well, to understand Saul, you really have to understand Israel at his time. You have to understand his generation and what he was coming into. The fact that Saul became king was an indictment on Israel, not something they should be proud of. Because previous to Saul, God had been the leader of Israel. And the fact that Israel became king was an act of rebellion against that leadership. Basically, by asking for a king, Israel was rejecting God. Saul became king only because Israel no longer wanted to follow the leadership of God. The the people wanted a king because they didn't want to have to be reliant on God. They wanted someone that they could see, they could rely on, and that they could control. And God was never any of those things. God had made a, a covenant with Israel all the way back in Sinai that when they would be obedient to him, He would lead them faithfully and successfully. And when they rebelled against him, he would give them over to the consequences of their actions. And Israel was trying to figure out a way out of that. They wanted the benefits of that, but not the consequences. And so they insist to Samuel that he appoints a king for them, someone who would make them like their neighbors. In chapter 8, verse 19, it puts it this way. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. Do you hear that? That we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel's plan was that they were going to succeed by blending in with people around them and that they were going to succeed by having someone who would make them like everybody else. Yet Israel was never intended to be like everybody else. In fact, just the opposite. They were meant to be a city on the hill, a light to the nations, and they give that up for the small comfort of blending in with their neighbor. And they say, you know, if we have a king, then the king can go out in front of us. The king can win our battles for us. The king can be the one who we trust in. And if you've read any of the Old Testament up to this point, you know, that was God's role, right? And they're going to exchange the immortal, invisible God for a small person. Who would possibly exchange the opinion of God for the opinion of people? Who would possibly cash in the infinite God of the universe just so that you could have 
the approval of your neighbors. Only a fool would do that, <laughs> like us. <laughs> like, I mean, how often do we do that? You know, before we kick Saul or we kick Israel too much, we see ourselves in that. We could spend a whole sermon just talking about the foolish ways we've exchanged the opportunity to follow God for the small comfort of the approval of people around us. Well, Samuel is understandably upset with this request, but God tells him, it's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Go ahead and anoint a king for them. And Israel gets the very sort of king they deserve. As the old saying goes, people always get the leader they deserve. And Israel gets the leader that they deserve. What do they want? They wanted someone who'd make them look good to their neighbors. So they get the impressive, dashing, tall figure of Saul. And what is Israel's core sin behind this? They care more about what God thinks about, they care more about their neighbors think about them than what God thinks about them. And they get a man cut exactly from that cloth. That is Saul's core sin. He cares more about what people think of him than what God thinks of him. And so Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And as a young king, he's anointed privately by Samuel, then publicly affirmed by the casting of lots, and finally affirmed by the people as their king after he wins a battle. It seems like things are starting well. He looks the part of a warrior king. He's described as a head taller than everyone else, a great fighter, someone who unites the tribes, who people are willing to follow who has a, a great blend of uh, courage and, um, hum and uh, kindness towards people around him. He seems like the sort of person that Israel would want as their king. But there's this really odd scene at the beginning of his time. He's at this giant gathering where Israel is choosing their new king publicly, and they're casting lots, these things called Urim and Thummim, that were supposed to discern the will of God that, again, we talk about another time. And it lands on Saul. And everyone says, okay, Saul's supposed to be the king. Where is he? And God says, he's in the baggage. They're like, what? And sure enough, Saul had like, tried to sneak off into the duffel bags and tried to hide. Um, and you'd imagine like a 6'6 guy trying to hide in duffel bags. And you just think like, what, what are you doing? And on the surface, it seems kind of humble. You know, like, oh no, you know, I, I, I don't want to lead. Only if you guys force me to. But it turns out that humility was never part of Saul's makeup actually not true humility, but rather fearful selfishness. The rest of his life, he would try to skirt responsibility, just like he did at his inauguration. We'll find out later that Saul's not a humble man at all. He's scared, he's fearful, and he's selfish. And his story is a tragedy. It's a, a failure that warns all of us who would come after him. Because he fails to obey God's commands if it, if it in any way lines up against human approval. His uh, failure is instructive for us, too, because we can put our desire for human approval in front of obeying God. You know, there's a lot of leaders in Israel's history who were outright wicked people. And Saul's sort of an interesting outlier to that. He's not obviously wicked. He doesn't worship Baal. He doesn't practice terrible things. He, on the veneer, on the outside, looks like a good guy. He looks like a religious guy. But Saul's problem is at the core He's outwardly impressive, yet at his base, he's driven by the approval of others. There's two stories that mark that. The first one's in chapter 13. Saul's won a couple small skirmishes up to this point. He's surprised the Philistines, attacked them um, at different garrisons and different outposts. And now the, Philistine must, the Philistines muster their whole army to come against him. And now it's serious time, right? Like, this is the real war. This isn't just sneak attacking some people. Now it's time to really fight. And Samuel tells Saul that God will be with him 
and that he's supposed to wait for Samuel at Gilgal for seven days, and Samuel will come, and they'll offer sacrifices, and God will show them the path to victory. And Saul obeys, sort of. Uh, Look at chapter 13, verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. So what's going on here? Uh, What's the problem? Saul, in this moment of truth, in this moment of, will he actually follow God? Things become difficult. Things become tense. Time becomes short. And his greatest fear is realized. The people scatter. He no longer has their approval. He no longer has their allegiance. And they're running away. And so Saul does something religious that on the surface looks like it'll unite the tribes, even though it's the very thing God's forbidden him from doing. And he uses religion as a crowbar to try to win the people over. It's not what God wants, but Saul doesn't really care. It's what gets the tribes to unite. This is a deep problem, not just because he's disobeying God, but because he's pretending to use religion in a way that never was God's desire. And so Saul Uh, arrives in verse 10, right after the sacrifices are done, and he challenges Saul about why he's disobeyed. And even more than the disobedience, Saul's answer is a deep problem because he never takes responsibility. Throughout Saul's story, he never takes responsibility. It's always someone else's fault with him. That's a, in Proverbs, that's a good way to tell who's a fool versus a wise man. You know, the wise man, if you correct him, he's wiser still. But the fool never is responsible for anything. It's always someone else's fault. The problem is never in the room. And if you're thinking right now, I know someone like that. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. (laughs) Back back on your own head, right? (laughs) Samuel uh, challenges Saul about why he's done this. And Saul's response is, what's the people's fault? Right? They, they, uh, They were leaving, right? It's the Philistines' fault. Samuel, it's your fault for being late. And in verse 12, he responds with this um, whiny, martyr-like phrase, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Well, how noble of you, Saul, to disobey God, forcing yourself along the way. And Samuel tells Saul the consequences of this blame shifting, this lack of responsibility, is that his kingdom won't uh, go through his lineage forever. He stays king for now, but his kids won't be. A couple chapters later, Saul's given a second chance. Saul's still on the throne. He's still the king. He's given a second chance to obey when things are difficult. And God tells him, now is the time to attack the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been uh, harassing uh, and oppressing Israel for centuries, all the way going back to their time coming out of the Exodus. And God says, Saul, you're the king. It's time for you to bring the justice of God against the Amalekites. In verse 3, it describes it very clearly. It says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not despair them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, you might say, wait, kill the what? With the what now? Uh, And I I get that. I get that this is stomach-churning stuff. The idea of destroying an entire people seems like the very opposite of what Jesus would teach or what we might expect to find in the Bible. And I I talked about this at, at... some length a couple weeks ago in the Sermon on Judges, so uh, we can't spend a ton of time on it today, but if you want to 
think more about it. There's some resources that, that I mentioned in that sermon that you're welcome to, or we could talk after. Um, I, I have six days until the next sermon after this, so we can stay <laughs> after and talk. Um, but I just want to honor, if this is offensive to you in some ways, like I, I want to honor a part of that and saying, like, yeah, the Amalekites were made in the image of God. It, it, as Ezekiel says, the Lord does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. No one's asking you to cheer, like, oh, yeah, way to, way to kill those Amalekites, right? Like, God's not happy about it. I'm not asking you to be happy about it. Um, but what I would say is, and I mentioned this in the judge's sermon, you know, the Amalekites were wicked people. There's a lot of historical reasons I talk about in the other sermon about that, that it wasn't just hundreds of years ago that they had done something bad. They had continually oppressed the Israelites, and they had kept them in subjugation for generations. And while pacifism you know, is appealing in some senses where we say, you know, what, wouldn't it be great if they just would have you know, loved the Amalekites into, the, into repentance? You know, if there's never a time for uh, the oppressed to be able to rise up and to use force, then um, there's not a lot of hope for the oppressed people, whether it's Israel or, or people today. The Amalekites were receiving the judgment of God that they deserved. It was the same standard of judgment that God would use against Israel themselves in generations to come. It wasn't a racist thing. It wasn't a biased thing. It was a reality that all of us live under the judgment of God. And for both the pacifist and for the war hawk, there's a challenge in this passage. It's not just the Bible describes warfare, but it describes a certain type of warfare. It says that warfare is not meant to be profiteering, that God's people shouldn't benefit financially off of the judgment of another people. And so God tells Saul very clearly, you are not to make any money off of this. You have to destroy everything that you find. You can't sell it. You can't keep it. This is not an endeavor that's a new business model for you. This is a judgment of me on the Amalekites. It's not for you to profit off of. And Saul's like, and Saul goes forward. He is successful in battle at, to a huge surprise because he has a huge military disadvantage against the Amalekites. But God uh, gives the Amalekites over and the Israelites win. But Saul fails. Look at verse 8. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the best of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So what's the passage saying? Saul had no problem with the executions, right? The execution of the people didn't bother him. The waste of the money bothered him, right? And this wasn't because he was like a founding member of PETA or something that he didn't want to kill the animals. This, this is all economically driven for him, right? This is a question of, will I actually lose out on the financial benefits of this? And he's just not willing to do that. And he's not willing to challenge the people to do that. And so in verses 10 and 11, it describes God and Samuel and their grief over Saul's rebellion. And it has a poignant line at the end of verse 11 where it says, Samuel cried out all night to the Lord. It'd be worth spending a whole sermon talking about Samuel in his old age because Samuel, um, his sons are wicked men. They are greedy. They take bribes. The, the reason that Israel climbs out, clamors out for a king in the first place is that Samuel's sons don't deserve to inherit his role. And so then he has this new guy that he puts faith in, which is uh, Saul, and Saul fails as well. And you kind of see Saul at the end of his, Samuel at the end of his life, like, 
my sons didn't succeed, and now Saul didn't succeed. And he cries out all night to the Lord. Again, probably another sad sermon for another day. Well, let's get back to this sad sermon. One sad sermon at a time. I feel like this is like Irish literature or something. Well, it's, it's, tempting, it's tempting in this to excuse Saul, to say, well, you know, he was just so soft-hearted, he didn't want to... He didn't want to destroy things. Like, is that so bad? Well, it is, because he's not having a problem with execution. He's having a problem with the financial benefits. And so Samuel goes to meet him uh, in verse 12. And Samuel's told, oh, Saul went to Caramel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he went, he passed down and went on to Gilgal. I know that's an easy verse to skip over, but notice what he does there. He builds a monument to himself. What vanity, right? Saul is obsessed with what people think of him. He wants to make himself great. He wants to be known as great. The reason he doesn't kill Agag, the king, is because he wants to be known as the king of kings, right? The, the guy who has kings taking out his bedpans, right? He, he wants to be known as the sort of person that has that sort of authority and honor. The king is meant to be a servant of God, but Saul has made himself the center And so when Samuel comes to Saul in verse 13, Saul pretends to be pious. Listen to this uh, hypocritical statement. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Or literally in Hebrew, I have listened to God and I have obeyed, right? And Samuel has a play on words here where he says, you think you've listened to God? Look at Samuel's response. What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? You hear God, I hear cows, right? (laughs) If you've heard God, why do I hear these animals? This is the second time that Samuel gives Saul this opportunity to repent, but for the second time, just like in chapter 13, Saul again is going to shift the blame, and he's going to excuse himself from responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. Look at verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Like, it's their, it's their fault. Whoever they are, it's their fault, right? For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's your fault, Samuel. It's God's fault. It's their fault. It's someone else's fault. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. I've done a pretty good job, Samuel. Can you just give me half credit? Do you hear all Saul's excuses? Right? It's always someone else's fault. The problem is never in the room. They're the ones who didn't do it. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? It's this woman that you gave me, God. It's her fault. She gave me the fruit. I, how was I supposed to know what it, where it came from, if it was organic or whatever? Um, <laughs> just like Adam shifted blame and, and Saul shifts blame, and we shift blame, right? We do this too. It's our kid's fault. You know, like, you know if, if our, my, my kids, if they would just obey, I wouldn't get so angry, if my parents would just not give me such a hard time, maybe I'd be more willing to do what they asked me to do. You know, if my spouse was just more uh, open to me, then I wouldn't have to look at pornography. Right? Like, if it's, if it, other people would do what I wanted them to do, then I wouldn't sin. That same sort of blame shifting that lived in Adam and lives in Saul lives in us. That's not to excuse it. Right? That's not to say, well, it's because it's common, therefore it's normal. No, no, no. Because it's common, therefore it's troubling. Right? And we should take seriously the roots, the destructiveness of the sin in Adam's life, the destructive it, destructiveness of it in Saul's life, and how much it can destroy 
our lives. Well, Saul's other excuse is, you know, I know this is wrong, I, I get that, but you know, there's something in it for God, right? Like, I'm going to totally tithe on all these animals you told me not to keep. Right? He says in verse 17, um, Samuel responds to him in verse 17 with this really biting indictment. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? What's, what's Saul's physically defining characteristic? He's tall, right? That's the only thing that the Bible really wants us to know about what Saul looked like. He was tall and he was strong. And Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, you see yourself like this. And you think because you're like this, you can get away from responsibility. But Samuel says, no, you have been anointed as king. You are, uh, verse 17, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul tried to get away from responsibility. He tried to pretend to be small, and maybe even in his own eyes, he believed he was small. Yet God had declared something different about him. And because he was the leader, because he was the king, there is no excuse for failing to live up to his responsibility. Saul's sin is he disobeyed God because he cared more about what people thought of him than what God had told him to do. He tried to shirk his responsibility, like Aaron before him with the golden calf, and blame it on the people. But the leader cannot do that. We cannot be leaders, whether it's as parents, as spouses, as bosses at your work, as small group leaders at this church, as Sunday school leaders, as Stephen ministers, who can be little in your own eyes. If you want to make everyone happy, don't be a leader. Right? Sell ice cream. Ice cream makes people happy. Don't, don't be a leader. Right? <laughs> don't be self-deceived. Don't, don't think that you can just get away with it because you can blame it on other people around you. If you're the leader, you're either encouraging it or allowing it to happen. And Saul was allowing it to happen. Now, this doesn't mean that the leader always gets his way or her way, right? There's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament who challenged the people, spoke truth, and the people just ran them over and went the other direction instead. You think about Jeremiah and others. Um, but at least they tried, right? Saul never tries. Saul is never willing to risk it to tell the people something that they don't want to hear. Instead, he just shifts the blame and says, you know, it's their fault. No, as a leader, you can't shift the blame. And you certainly can't use religious ends to justify the means. Saul's story shows that we can never use religious ceremony to replace obedience. There can never be a time that we say, well, God will allow this disobedience because of what I'm giving him later in my service, in my offerings, in, uh, in my sort of tangential attempts to please him. That never makes up for obedience. And look at verse 22 as Samuel describes it. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul, Saul hears the very stinging indictment of Samuel. You cannot use offerings to make up for a lack of obedience. We cannot use religious activity to make up for a lack of obedience to God. When we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is no amount of works that can make up for that. 
There is no amount of future obedience that makes up for past disobedience. And so Samuel tells Saul, you'll no longer be king. If you will not stand up to the people and challenge what they want to do, you cannot rule. Basically, if you aren't going to be the king, you aren't going to be the king. And Saul says in this really sad line in verse 24, he sees what's wrong and yet he still won't truly repent. I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding for self-awareness. Yep, that is what you did, Saul. That is exactly the problem. You feared the people and you obeyed their voice and not God's. But this is the sad part, verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Why do I say that's a sad verse? Well, what was, what was uh, Saul's plan? How was he going to make up for this? His plan was to take these animals that were supposed to be destroyed, uh, let the people keep a lot of them, and then offer a couple of them as sacrifices. And, so, and Samuel comes to him and says, you should never have done that. That is a wicked act. And Saul says, okay, I get that. I should not have done that. Uh, but can we still go ahead with the whole sacrifice thing? Like, is that cool? I guess I don't want anyone to know. I just, I want to keep this between us. Like, I, I'm totally wrong. I get that. I'm totally in the wrong. But just, shh, don't tell anyone. I don't want people to think poorly of me, right? That's not true repentance. That's like, um, that's like a, a, a wedding that's about to happen. And the, the bride-to-be comes to the husband-to-be and says, I found out that you're having an affair. I'm never going to marry you. And he says, oh, I get that. I totally get that. My bad. I should not have done that. But, you know, my grandma's coming, and all our friends are coming. Can we just walk down the aisle? (laughs) We don't actually have to get married, but can no one know about this? Like, no, no, no. Of course not, right? Saul is the same sort of fool, right? It's clear that he's still driven more by people's opinion of him than he is to obedience to God. That's not how you confess. Look at verse 30. He tries it again. I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. I've sinned, yet honor me. How can that be, right? He is still chasing other people's approval. Throughout his life and even to his death, he would do this. These are sacrifices of animals that he was never supposed to take in the first place. Think about how foolish that is. What I wish Saul would have done, what I wish he would have done, is say, if God's rejected me as king, I I step down, I abdicate. Like, all that matters really is about my relationship with him. If if he anointed me as king and now he's taking me away as king, that's fine. Like, I just want to be in right relationship with God. If I have to step down from my ministry to do that, that's fine. If I never lead again, that's fine. All that matters is being in right relationship with him. I don't care what other people think of me. I don't care what role I have. And yet he's not willing to do that. And like so many leaders since then, there is a desire to protect and to pretend rather than confess and rather than own up to his sin. May we never be like that. Sometimes people object to this and think, you know, should God have really been so severe in his judgment of Saul? I mean, is what Saul did really that bad? Like, look what David does later. Isn't he like a worse guy by a lot of our metrics? But the difference isn't so much their sins, but their repentance. You know, David is open and willing to repent, whereas Saul is hidden, only repenting insofar as it doesn't actually cost him anybody's approval. And that's not true repentance at all. Well, what what do I want you to take away from this message? What do I want you to take away from Saul's example? I mean, the obvious thing is don't be like Saul, right? 
Don't be like Saul. Don't have a life that is run by the opinion of others. Don't let your confession and repentance be truncated by a desire to win the approval of others. As uh, 1 Samuel 16 says, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So don't care so much about other people's outward views of you. Care about what God sees in your heart. But the other thing I want you to take away from this is, you know, we look at Saul's failed kingdom and we think, oh, we need a king that's not like that. We need a king who is faithfully obedient to God even when people abandon him. We need a king who can bring us to God, who can challenge us when we need to be challenged, and can lead us to a place of holiness. Now, uh, as Samuel says to Saul, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to someone who is better than you. We think what he means is David, and we'll talk about David more next week. In a lot of ways, David is a man after God's heart, but not completely. David's a, a small picture of what we need, but not the greatest picture. We need someone like David, but more so. Someone who not only is willing to repent, but in the first place doesn't have something to repent of because he's obedient to God fully. We, we need someone who, unlike Saul, is willing to follow the direction of God and the obedience to God. You know, Saul's made king because people don't want to live under God's authority, but Jesus is the king who is the authority of God. Saul's willing to violate God's commands in order to keep the crowd's interest and approval. But Jesus follows God's commands even when it meant the crowd turned on him and crucified him. You know, when he's king, Saul's unwilling to challenge the people that he is the leader over. But Jesus is willing to even challenge leaders of Israel. Saul lost his kingdom because he was unwilling to live courageously. But Jesus gave up his kingdom out of obedience to God and has been exalted to the name above every name at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And because as Christians we believe in Jesus, we follow Jesus, we are in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, therefore we enjoy the grace and mercy that comes from that. We look at Saul's rejection, we look at the way that he is deposed from the kingdom, and we see ourselves if it wasn't for Jesus. But we look at the way that Jesus is faithful and we think that we're with, we say we're with him. And because of that, we have grace and mercy beyond measure. What he says about us matters so much more than what people say about us. A couple questions for you to pray about and think about this week. One, what do you see in Saul's temptations that resonates with your soul? Where do you find yourself uncomfortably like Saul? Secondly, uh, have you ever tried to make a person take on God's role in your life the way Israel did? And then lastly, do you ever try to validate your disobedience to God? Do you ever try to do what Saul did and say, well, I know I disobeyed, but, but I'll make it up to you other ways, God? No, no, let's, let's turn our hearts fully in confession and gratitude to God for his grace. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the story of Saul because we see in his failure what our failure would be like if it wasn't for you. God, we're grateful, so grateful for the gift of your son. Thank you that he is the king, not just that we deserve, but so much more than that, he is the king that we need. God, if it was up to us, we would have failed a thousand times over. Saul's second chances and third chances are our story apart from you. Thank you that you have given us grace beyond measure, that you have given us mercy, and help us to be sons and daughters of yours who are obedient uh, out of joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.